Would you open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5? Exodus chapter 5. Today we're going to look at uh, Exodus 5 verses 1 through 21. We're not going to quite make it to the end of the chapter. That'll be attached to chapter 6 next week. In the book of Exodus, we've just completed this cycle of Moses' calling. And now we're turning to a new phase in Moses' ministry. Chapters 1 and 2, we're dealing with Moses' preparation, his birth, and his his, uh, journey in the wilderness. Chapters 3 and 4 were his call to ministry. And now in chapter 5, his ministry really commences before Pharaoh and before the people of Israel. And we come into conflict for the first time with this new Pharaoh who is going to afflict and oppress the people even more. So hear God's word starting in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. They may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks they made in the past, you shall impose on them, and you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to their lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, pressing them, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday? in the past. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. And he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. When they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord stands forever. 
Amen. If you've followed the news, um, you'll know that in December, there was a group of self-proclaimed Satanists who went to the Iowa State Capitol and set up this um, shrine, this idol, to Satan. And if you've followed the news, you probably know that Michael Cassidy, who's a a politician from Meridian, went to Iowa and and tore down that that statue. And this week he was was charged with a hate crime in Iowa because they say that his actions were motivated by religious prejudice, which, as far as it goes, is probably true. And I I don't want to comment on the political ironies there, but there is an irony in the way that this has been handled. Because the satanic group that erected that statue, the satanic group that has made this shrine the state capital, explicitly declares itself to be non-religious. Their, their stated goals are to promote secularism, to promote atheism, and it's a growing movement. However, I, I would assert to you that this is very much a work of Satan in our day. In some cultures, Satan makes himself obvious because he wants to be known. But in others, like our own, his greatest greatest deceit is to convince us that he doesn't really exist. Don't fall for that trick. Remember what the Apostle Peter said, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Remember also what we've talked about with Pharaoh in Exodus. Pharaoh was merely a man, but in the book of Exodus, he represents more than that. He represents not only his own power, but he represents the very forces of evil. He is an instrument of Satan being used to oppress the people of Israel. He is, in no uncertain terms, a servant of the serpent. Moses is not simply dealing with a wicked and evil king. He's doing more than that. He's engaging in spiritual warfare with the devil himself. So don't be fooled. The the same serpent who was at work in the garden, the same serpent who was at work in Pharaoh, it's the same serpent that is at work in our day. And he hates you. Satan hates you. He seeks to devour and to destroy you. But we're called to be on guard. And part of that is knowing how to identify his work and how to address it. So in this passage, we see three different strategies, three different things that Satan does, three different ways he seeks to steal our joy in Christ Three different gifts of God that he hates. Here they are. First, Satan hates rest. Second, Satan hates truth. And third, Satan hates life. Satan hates rest. Satan hates truth. And Satan hates life. First, Satan hates rest. So to begin, Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh, and they're requesting that the people of Israel be allowed to go into the wilderness to worship. So look at verse 1. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, if you're a, if you're a good Bible reader, if you're, if you're tuned into what's going on across the spectrum of the Old Testament, you'll notice how similar Pharaoh's words are to the serpent in the garden. He denigrates God. When he says, who is the Lord? It's not a plea of ignorance. He probably understands that the Lord is who the Israelites worship. He knows who the Hebrews are. But what he's really saying is, 
Look, God can't do anything to me. I'm more powerful than God. I know more than God. You remember that knowledge in this context implies an intimate knowledge, a closeness, connection, not simply awareness. And so Moses and Aaron go on in verse 3. They say, The God of the Hebrews has met us. Please let us go three days of journey into the wilderness. We may sacrifice us to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence over the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. So at first glance, it, it really looks like Moses and Aaron have a different set of concerns than Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron are asking to go into the wilderness to worship, and Pharaoh saying, no, you can't rest. But biblically, these two ideas go hand in hand. Rest and worship go together. We quoted the words from Jesus earlier, Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But a lot of times we like to stop there. There's actually more, and I read this earlier, but it says, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You're still under a yoke. Jesus' rest that he offers is not idleness, it's not laziness. His call to rest is a call to a different kind of work. His call to rest is a call to worship. That's why they go together, that's why our day of rest is also a day of worship. God's rest is a rest from the world's work so that we can do his work of worship. And ultimately, that work of worship for the believer is an easy burden and a joy. It's light work because it is fundamentally what we're made to do. But that restful work is the very thing that Pharaoh and his master, the servant, seeks to rob us of. Last week, we included the the Ten Commandments in our Confession of Sin. And the reason we do that is because Christians have always held that the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law that will become clear in Exodus as we uh, unpack some of the law sections. Jesus reiterates that fact over and over again in his ministry. The Ten Commandments are the, the foundation of Christian morality, but without fail, the first one that we tend to neglect is the fourth, to remember the Sabbath. Now that's something culturally that has happened over the past half century or so. Some of you are old enough to remember something called blue laws. And again, I'm not making political statements here, but I think this is an instructive thing to notice. For most of American history, a wide range of economic activities were prohibited on Sunday. But in recent decades, those laws have been repealed. And Christians, by and large, have gone along with it. So just to take one example, not to pick on the Baptists, but this is just a clear example. In 1963, the Baptist faith and message repeated essentially what the Westminster Confession of Faith said about the Sabbath. They said we need to honor the Sabbath. It's important. In 2000, that document was revised to say activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience. Presbyterians, I argue, have done—I would argue—have done even worse. You know, we haven't changed our confessional documents; we just ignore what they say. But what are the ramifications of this change in the way we treat the Lord's Day? Well, in 2008, some economists from MIT and Notre Dame found that the repeal of blue laws 
are a direct cause of reduced church attendance, reduced giving, and increased alcohol and drug abuse. You see, what happens when we neglect the Lord's Day, when we neglect his rest, when we neglect his worship, is that we're cut off from his people, we're cut off from his word, and we're cut off from his promises. That's why Satan hates rest. If he can convince God's people that they don't really need rest, that they don't really need to gather with the saints, that they don't really need to sit under the preaching of the word, he's made it that much easier to attack us. You can think of it like a lion, Satan as a lion, who seeks after that one animal that's got separated from the herd. The devouring lion goes for that one first. And so this isn't just a a secondary matter. It's not just a nice add-on to the Christian life that maybe we get sometimes. No, it's vitally important. Satan hates rest, and he hates the worship that goes with rest, and he would like nothing more than for you to work yourself out of fellowship with God. So don't buy the lie. Satan hates rest, but God offers us rest. Second, Satan hates truth. Look at verse 6. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. For the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them, and you shall by no means reduce it. For they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them, on the men, for they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt together stubble or straw. So Pharaoh has received a word from God, directly from the prophet of God, Moses and Aaron, a command from God, thus says the Lord. And his response is to give his own word, his own command to the people of Israel. You may have noticed that in verse 10, the taskmasters use this phrase, thus says Pharaoh. That terminology is almost exclusively used for a divine decree from God. It's the same terminology used in verse 1. In other words, we have two competing commands. Two competing truths. You have God's word in conflict with Pharaoh's word. Again, this brings us back to the garden. When Eve approached the tree, she was confronted with the same question. Do I believe God's word? Or the serpent's word? Let's compare these two words, God's and Pharaoh's. You'll notice that Pharaoh's word comes to conflict with God's word in two ways. First, Pharaoh, the servant of the serpent, distorts, twists, turns God's word. Notice what Pharaoh says in verse 7. He says, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. You remember Moses asked Pharaoh to let the people go three days into the wilderness. Well, Pharaoh says, oh, I'll let them go. Let them go and gather straw. There's also this interesting phrase in the past. 
as in the past, or uh, your Bible may say as before, or as previously in verse 7. If you have an NIV, for some reason they drop this out. I'm not, I'm not sure why. So you may want to make a note of that. But here's why that phrase caught my attention. It's, it's a Hebrew idiom that literally means three days ago. You say things like that all the time in English. You might say it's been a minute or once in a blue moon. The same thing, kind of thing is going on here. And so they translate it as the meaning. But it's a, it's a play on words. This idiom is, is chosen specifically to contrast God's words. Go into three days journey in the wilderness. To contrast that with Pharaoh's words. Pharaoh is taking the very words of God. Let them go three days. And he's twisting them and turning them and distorting them for his own purposes. He says, God says, let my people go three days. And Pharaoh says, let them go and make bricks as they did three days before. That's an old tactic of the devil. Pharaoh, just like the serpent, is asking the same question. He's saying, did God really say? But he goes further. He doesn't just distort God's word, twist it. He goes even deeper. He outright rejects God's word. Notice in verses 8 and 9 when he tells the taskmasters, he says, they're going to tell you that they want to go worship. But don't listen to their lying words. When confronted with the truth, that the Israelites are seeking to go worship, that the Israelites would like to go honor their God, he calls that truth a lie. If you're with us Wednesday for Bible study, you might say that what he's doing is suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. Every truth that God offers to Pharaoh is ultimately replaced by a falsehood. Every truth that God offers to us the evil one tries to replace with a falsehood. Now, I could talk at length about how our culture does this, but I think if you just turn on the news for about five minutes, you'll see the father of lies at work. And I hope, if you're a Christian, that this is somewhat obvious to you. But in a world full of falsehood, in a world like this where lies are rampant, it's really easy for Christians to think that we have it all figured out. We're the truthful people. Those guys out there are the ones who are lying. We're the ones that can't be deceived. But have you ever sought to justify your sin? Have you ever tried to make excuses for yourself? What about this? Are you embarrassed by any passage of Scripture? You see, it's, it's really easy to affirm the authority of God's word with our mouths. But the devil is in the details, isn't it? If you go to nearly any church on the planet, most radically conservative, most radically liberal, everything in between, you find that on some level, they're willing to accept the Scripture's authority. They're willing to accept that Scripture is God's word in some way, but functionally, most Christians only believe the parts of the Bible that comport with their modern and rational sensibilities. That is fundamentally opposed to the way that we ought to deal with God's words. Pharaoh claimed that he didn't know God. But we claim that we do. And we still fall into the same trap. So Christian, the devil would have you think that you are an arbiter of truth. That's the lie that he told Eve in the garden. That she herself and herself had the capacity to judge good from evil. The capacity to judge truth from falsehood. But that really is a lie. Our job is not to pick to the Bible, to look for the things that strike us as comfortable and nice, 
Maybe we can put together a devotional book that takes just the, the nicest 365 Bible verses. No, our job is to receive the truth of God's word. We ought to be like those in Thessalonians who Paul commended saying, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Satan hates the truth. But the truth of God found in his word is the only thing can truly bring us life, which brings us to the third point. Satan hates life. Look at verse 13. It says the taskmasters were urgent, they were pressing, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all of your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the, the brick-making process. Madeline and I actually discussed this last night. She has written a wonderful paper in college on uh, ancient earthenwork structures. So if you want to know more about that, she's the person to ask. But here's, here's my understanding of what's going on in this passage. When they're making bricks, what they would do is they would start by putting together a mixture of clay and some other materials, rocks, gravel, to hold things together. And they would cut this clay into chunks, and it would be pressed into a mold to dry. And so this is where the straw comes in. What they would do is they would put straw underneath and on top of the bricks because they wanted the, the bricks to dry evenly. Now, what we do today, we have air tunnels and kilns and things like that to do even drying, but this is what they would do. They would put it in the sun. They were sun-dried, and they would put straw underneath and on top. And so this drying process is critical for making bricks. And the point is this. You can't rush brick-making and expect a good product. Pharaoh is calling them to an impossible task, something they can't do. They were urgent. They were hastening. They Literally, they pressed upon the Israelites, just as the Israelites were pressing the bricks. And so the, the Israelites rightfully raise an objection. Look at verse 15. They say, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. What did Pharaoh say? He said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you. And you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen, the people of Israel, saw that they were in trouble. When they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They saw that they were in trouble. You ever had that feeling? You know you're stuck in a bad situation and you can't get out? That's where they're at and they've made this realization. So verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So it took some time. But the Israelites finally understand what's going on. Pharaoh is not interested in bricks. If, that's really, if that were the case, he wouldn't have hindered the brick-making process. What he's really interested in is annihilating the people of God. The previous Pharaoh had done the same thing. He was more open about it, less sneaky. He just tried to kill him outright, throw him in the river. 
But this new Pharaoh has, has learned from the mistakes of his predecessor. And he found a new way, a more subtle way, to crush the people of God. Pharaoh, following the footsteps of his master, the serpent, hates life. One of the fundamental principles of the gospel is that we must understand the weight of our sin. The words of David, Psalm 38. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. That's the problem that we all have. We all need a solution for it. Satan's solution is death. In 2 Timothy, Paul describes people, false teachers, who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's what the evil one wants for us. He wants us to carry the burden of our sin. He wants us to think that the only way out from that burden is to carry an even heavier load. He gives us endless good deeds to do. Things to rectify our wrongs. He takes the law of God and he twists it and he turns it. So that it's no longer a gift to us, but a curse. God gives us ten simple words, ten simple commands, but Satan says that's not enough. You also need to make sure that your kids are in every possible extracurricular activity. You also need to make sure that you're appropriately concerned for the actions of every politician every minute of the day. You also need to recycle. You need to take all the right shots. You need to cheer for the right sports teams. You need to make the right amount of money. And on and on and on and on, he loads more burdens on you. But consider the words of Paul from Romans 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the reality is that on the basis of our works, what we're due is death. But Paul goes on saying, to the one who does not work, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Jesus gives us a better way. He still calls us to a life of good works, but those good works are no longer a burden because it is that God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Satan would lead you down a path of hard labor, a path of lies, and a path of death. But Jesus offers us rest and truth and life. Satan hates life, but Jesus Christ has purchased eternal life for us. So read again that line in verse 21. It says, you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. The Israelites bring that to Moses and Aaron as a complaint. But they don't realize that that is exactly what they need. It brings to mind a text from 2 Corinthians. Listen to these words. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Christian, understand that Satan hates you. You are a stench in his nostrils. And he wants nothing more than to quell that flame of incense that rises up from God's people. But that same aroma is a beautiful fragrance in God's presence. When you, as Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to him, you are received as a pleasant aroma that has been purified and washed by Jesus Christ. Satan seeks to kill 
to destroy. But he will fail, and he will always fail, because we are united to the one who defeated death and destruction. He can seek to steal your rest, but Christ has completely secured your eternal rest. He can seek to teach you lies, but Christ's blood speaks a sure and perfect word of truth for your sanctification. He can seek to kill you, but death died in the death of Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.